On February 8th, 1796, a man came before the town council in Cumberland, Rhode Island, with an unusual question. Mr. Stephen Staples of Cumberland appeared before this council and prayed that he might have liberty granted unto him to dig up the body of his daughter, Abigail Staples, late of Cumberland, single woman, deceased, in order to try an experiment on Lavinia Chase, wife of Stephen Chase, which said Lavinia was sister to the said Abigail, deceased, which being duly considered, it is voted and resolved that the said Stephen Staples have liberty to dig up the body of the said Abigail, deceased, and after trying the experiment, as foresaid, that he bury the body of said Abigail in a decent manner. Whatever preconceived notions about me you may have from listening to me do this podcast, I bet you never expected me to tell you that there was a vampire in my hometown. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, I wish I could say I was joking, but this isn't a joke. In fact, it's quite true. In fact, you might say I come from the vampire capital of the United States. Rhode Island, while small in size, is rich in legend. And it's also rich in cemeteries. I know I've often mentioned, but Rhode Island, as the first state that granted complete religious freedom, had an overabundance of cemeteries, mainly because the churchyard model, which dominated the overwhelming majority of Puritan New England, did not predominate there. That's not to say that there weren't churches. There were. For example, the first Baptist church in America is in Providence. One of the first Jewish synagogues in the United States is located in Newport. There are an abundance of really significant, very historic churches there. However, there were also an overwhelming majority of dissenters, people who either did not practice a particular religion or were only loosely affiliated with the church. The early settlements of Rhode Island also were somewhat unusual. The original name of the state, the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, hints at its heavy agricultural past. As a result, large portions of the state were given over to large agricultural regions. And while today it may blend in with the general metro areas of both Boston and New York, and is definitely densely populated, large parts, particularly of western Rhode Island, remain quite rural. The town where I grew up, about 15 or 20 minutes north of Providence, right on the Massachusetts line, was no exception. Despite being incredibly rocky, so rocky so that it had its own form of mineral called Cumberlandite, Cumberland still remains largely agricultural. There are large swaths of the town that are still farms. So even though it was densely populated, and a pretty large town for even that region, in my introduction to the podcast, I introduced a lot of this information. But now I want to expand. Because the tale of Abigail Staples is only one of a somewhat rare and frankly fascinating piece of American history that is closely tied to its cemeteries. The idea of a vampire panic in New England is certainly not a new one. Growing up, I didn't know about the vampire story. 
But the cemetery where Abigail Staples is supposedly buried, which is Rhode Island Historic Cemetery, Cumberland, number 17, was right down the road from my middle school. It's a cemetery that I've probably passed a thousand times in my life, if not more. It's unassuming. There's nothing about it that clearly screams that a cemetery like this could have a vampire buried in it. Now, for some context, I want to talk a little bit about how this trend emerges. I have to say that there has been a great deal of scholarship done on the vampire panic in New England. I will say that the story of Abigail Staples falls at the early end. The overwhelming expert on the subject is a man who has focused on folklore for most of his career by the name of Michael Bell. Now, I had the opportunity to see Mr. Bell speak in person a number of years ago, I would say probably close to 15, at a public library. I've read his book, I've read multiple interviews with him, and he's an interesting guy. While many others have written on the phenomenon, he definitely is the definitive expert, particularly on the cases that happen in New England. And Bell is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is, he fully acknowledges, going in, that he is a skeptic. But what I will say is that being a folklorist versus a traditional academic, he does keep an open mind. And it's fascinating to read his accounts, because one, I think everyone should read this book because it really illustrates just how hard it is to do research even into the relatively recent past. It's probably time to get out of the way that I think you're going to be disappointed if you're looking for actual vampires. Because in my opinion, and maybe I'm not as open-minded, I'm not a folklorist, there are no actual vampires. Indeed, the overwhelming idea of vampires and the vampire panic is really summed up by one of the earlier publications that were written about the phenomenon. The Animistic Vampire in New England was written in 1896 by a man named George R. Stetson, just like the hat. Um, and it was published in American Anthropologist. So let's start by talking about animism. Animism is what a lot of us probably heard in school as being anthropomorphism. And it's basically the belief that a supernatural power can organize and control the natural universe. So the same way that you can believe that an animal or an inanimate object, like say a toaster or a teapot can talk, and you provide them with human traits, animism is very much the same way. The idea that there is some supernatural force that is controlling nature, whether it's the weather, whether it's other natural phenomenon, whatever it might be. This idea is that a vampire is not really a vampire. Not in the sense that we think of. Not Bella Lugosi, not Barnabas Collins, not all of the vampires. You're not talking about Dracula wearing a cloak, turning into a bat. We're not talking about a figure. We're talking about an idea. According to George Stetson, the character, purpose, and manner of vampires are a manifestation of the environment and culture that they appear. Basically, they become a cultural scapegoat. And in this case, the cultural scapegoat is disease. So at the root of this, and if you read the title of this episode, you've probably already figured it out, is a disease. And that disease is consumption. Today, we would call it pulmonary tuberculosis. 
The term consumption comes from the idea that those who suffered from it were literally consumed by the disease over time. The idea of the animistic vampire is that the vampire, or the vampire figure in this case, I think it's a fair term to say the vampire figure because these people serve as the scapegoats. They serve as the figure of fear in people's lives. The overwhelming majority of these cases are missing a lot of the things that we normally think of with vampires. They're missing the bites on the neck. They are missing the turning into bats. And in most cases, they're even missing the figure of a vampire, somebody who is literally rising from the grave every night. The core of this episode is going to be looking at how tuberculosis as a disease was transmuted into this fear and how the physical space of the cemetery kind of becomes the battleground upon which this ideological battle is fought. And it's really a fascinating idea because there are a significant number of cases. Now, I have since read that uh, Michael Bell plans to publish another book He is because he has found so many more. But the original vampire legends start around 1793, and they end with probably the most famous case, which of course I will cover, which is Mercy Brown in Exeter, Rhode Island in 1892. So roughly a century of these cases. I want to give you a little bit of background on tuberculosis, and I'm going to try to do this in a way that is not overwhelming. Tuberculosis or consumption is caused by the Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the MTB. The oldest known case we know was found in the body of a bison in Wyoming, which dates to 17,000 years ago. We do know that TB dates back to the prehistoric period. We know that through every civilization from the ancient Egyptians to the ancient Greeks and Romans, they have suffered from TB. It is estimated that at a certain point in history, that one in seven of all people who have ever lived were killed by tuberculosis. There are a couple of types. So there is active and latent forms of tuberculosis. Active obviously means physically affecting you versus latent is generally asymptomatic. It cannot spread unless it becomes active, which it does sometimes. There are generally different forms. So there is long-term consumption, which can often take years to kill people. And then there is the version that is called galloping consumption, which decimates a person's body in a matter of months. Now, which type of tuberculosis you have, it, it largely is dependent on a lot of factors. Essentially what happens is, is that when tuberculosis bacteria gets into your lungs, it forms these little globules that will eventually start to wear away at the tubercules, which is where it gets its name from. You can see this on x-rays where you can see that the lungs start to look like Swiss cheese as small parts of the anatomy are eaten away. Now, 90% of tuberculosis is what's known as pulmonary tuberculosis, where it is contained to the lungs. It does not tend to spread throughout the body, but it can. It is highly contagious, and it is transferred by coughing and sharing of water droplets. Um, It's estimated that as little as 10 parts per million can affect people. So if you were living in the house with someone with tuberculosis, it was very likely highly contagious and could be passed on. Robert Cook discovers the tuberculosis um, bacterium and will eventually win the Nobel Prize for it. But unfortunately, at the time that this is identified and they begin to experiment with it, germ theory is still in its very nascent stages. 
So there is a lot of doubt. There's a lot of misunderstanding. They made a lot of different observations about how tuberculosis could be treated. Fresh air seems to be the biggest one. Now, was it really fresh air or was it the fact that people were living in tight, crowded conditions? Because the fact is, even though tuberculosis has existed throughout history, it reaches its peak in the 19th century. Because in a pre-antibiotic age, when people were becoming increasingly industrialized in cities, tuberculosis spreads rampantly. Whereas before, people were spending more time outside, they were more spread out, it would spread, but it did not spread in quite as deadly a manner. Statistically, looking at it, history, immigrants and black folks, unsurprisingly, were the ones who were most affected by it. The estimates are that immigrants were twice as likely to die of tuberculosis as native-born whites in the United States, and black folks between three and four times higher, depending on where they lived. Because they didn't quite know beyond fresh air what the cure was for this, there were a lot of solutions. And a big part of this is sanitariums. So sanitariums, um, the first uh, major one is found in the Adirondacks by a man named Edward Trudeau at Sarnak Lake. He really pushes for these type of mountain retreats and getting people out into fresh air. They would sleep on porches. It's really fascinating. There are lots of videos and lots of interviews you can see with people who survived tuberculosis in sanitariums, and they talked about sleeping outside in the cold with blankets piled on top of them and waking up covered in snow. Other theories pushed people west. Many, many of the towns out west were originally founded as spas where you could escape the congestion and crowding and disease of the East. And soon they were inundated with folks suffering from tuberculosis. Places like LA, Denver, Colorado Springs, Albuquerque, all of them have their early history with tuberculosis. It's estimated that by 1910, one in 170 Americans lived in a sanitarium. You can understand why this disease was terrifying to people. Now, I would love to say that TB no longer exists, but it absolutely does. It does become very controllable due to the development of antibiotics. So streptomycin first started being administered in the 1940s. You would essentially be treated with five courses of antibiotics. Um, and they learned this because initially they were not giving as many treatments and people would have an immediate response where they would get better and then a few months later they would get worse. So then they discovered that it took time for eventually the antibiotics to work and they eventually develop a cocktail, a combination, a triple cure of three different forms of antibiotics that are administered together and that becomes the long-term treatment for this. Before antibiotics, half of all tuberculosis patients died within five years of diagnosis. By 1954, so a decade after the beginning of the streptomycin trials, what happens is, is we have the last patient is released from Edward Trudeau Sanitarium in Sarnak Lake, New York. So within a decade, they have essentially wiped it off the map. However... <laughs> Things change. Um, one of the things that has changed and that has greatly affected this is the rise of HIV and AIDS. Makes one particularly susceptible to tuberculosis and the damage to the immune system that is caused by the HIV virus makes it very difficult to overcome. So the same way that folks 
with AIDS often eventually will succumb to relatively minor infections of things like pneumonia or TB, which otherwise could be treated in a healthy immune system. They do succumb to it. Today, if you look at the statistics, um, there are 10 million people who develop tuberculosis every year, which is startling when you think about it as an old-timey kind of disease. Of those, roughly 1.5 million die. So it's certainly not something that's been eradicated, um, but I will say that cases in the United States are very far away from what they are in other parts of the world. So for example, 44% of cases occur in Southeast Asia and another 25% occur in Africa. The first case I want to talk about is one that really edges right on the beginning. And it's interesting because when I get later to the theories about how some of these ideas developed, it'll really come a little bit clearer, I think, because Michael Bell has a theory which I know have, some people have ridiculed, but I think is actually a pretty good one. I'll get back to that later. But let's talk a little bit about Sarah Tillinghast. At the breaking out of the revolution, there dwelt in one of the remoter Rhode Island towns a young man whom we shall call Stukely. He married an excellent woman and settled down to life as a farmer. Industrious, prudent, and thrifty, he accumulated a handsome property for a man of his station in life, and comparable to his surroundings. In his family, he had likewise prospered, for Mrs. Stukely, meanwhile, time had not been idle, having presented her worthy spouse with fourteen children. Numerous and happy were the family, and proud was the sire as he rode around town on his excellent horse, attired in his homespun jacket of butternut brown, a species of garment which he must affect it. So much indeed that he did affect that sobriquet which was given to him by the townspeople. It grew out of the brown color of his coat and was called Snuffy. And by that name he lived and by that name he died. For many years all worked well with Snuffy. His sons and daughters developed finely until some of them had reached the age of man or womanhood. The eldest was a comely daughter, Sarah. One night, Snuffy dreamed a dream in which he had remembered in the morning. It gave him no end of worriment. He dreamed that he possessed a fine orchard, as in truth he did, and that exactly half of the trees in it died. The occult meaning hidden in this revelation was beyond the comprehension of Snuffy. And that was what gave worry to him. Events, however, developed rapidly, and he was not kept long in suspense at the meaning of his singular dream. Sarah, the eldest child, sickened and in her malady developed into a quick consumption, hurrying her into her grave. Sarah was laid away in the family burying ground, and quite a game came to the family. His apprehensions were not buried with the grave of Sarah, however. His unquiet was but of a short duration, for soon a second daughter was taken ill, precisely as Sarah had been, and quickly was hurried to the grave. But in the second case, there was one symptom or complaint of a startling character, which was not present in the first case. This was the continual complaint that Sarah came every night and sat upon some portion of the body, causing great pain and misery. So it went on, one after another, sickened and died until six were dead. And the seventh, a son, was taken ill. The mother also now complained of these nightly visits of Sarah. These characteristics were present in every case after the first one. Consternation confronted the stricken household. Evidently, something must be done, and that, too, right quickly saved the remnant of the family. 
A consultation was called with the most learned people, and it was resolved to exhume the bodies of the six dead children. Their hearts were then taken from their body and burned upon a rock in front of the house. The neighbors were called in to assist with this lugubrious enterprise. There were the Wilcoxes, the Reynoldses, the Whitfords, the Moonies, the Gardeners, and others. With pick and spade, the graves were soon opened, and the six bodies were found to be in far advanced stages of decomposition. These were the last children who had died, but the first, the body of Sarah, was found to be in a very remarkable condition. The eyes were open and fixed, the hair and nails had grown, and the heart and arteries were filled with fresh red blood. It was clear at once that these astonished people that the cause of the trouble lay before them. All the conditions of the vampire were present in the corpse of Sarah, the first that had died, and against whom all the others had so bitterly complained. So her heart was removed and carried to the designated rock, and there solemnly burned. This being done, the mutilated bodies were returned to their respective graves and covered. Peace came then to this afflicted family, but not, however, until the seventh victim had been demanded. Thus was the dream fulfilled. No longer did the nightly visits of Sarah affect his wife, who soon regained her health. The seventh victim was the son, a promising young farmer who had married and lived upon the farm adjoining. He was too far gone when the burning of Sarah's heart took place to recover. So, that extraordinary article comes from an 1888 publication um, called A Belief in Vampires in Rhode Island, published by a man named Sidney S. Ryder. Now, if we look into this case, we see a couple of things. First, that consumption is 100% seen as being the culprit. The second is some rather, rather colorful family history about Snuffy and his snuff-colored jacket. But also the idea that he has this prophetic dream, which if you remember your Bible, is very similar to the dream that Pharaoh has and Joseph interprets for him, where he helps Pharaoh to prepare for years of famine. But we see the origins of the vampire myth. Now, it's very difficult to see if all of this occurred or if this is shaped by later events. Now, granted, Sidney Ryder's publication occurs before the exhumation of Mercy Brown, which will be the last of the vampire exhumations, and without a doubt is the most famous. But was this carried throughout history? Now, this purportedly actually takes place around 1799, despite the fact that in the story it's identified as happening right after the revolution. Most likely based on the history and the identification of the actual family, which is the Tillinghast family. What subsequent research will reveal is that Snuffy's actual identity is that of Stukely and Honor Tillinghast. So Stukely and Honor are married. They do have the right amount of children. And they reside in Exeter, Rhode Island. Now, this is a case where there is not a lot of hard physical evidence. We don't necessarily know exactly where Sarah Tillinghast is buried. Parts of the family have been identified, and there is a family cemetery. Most likely, similar to the case of Abigail Staples in Cumberland, she does not have a marked grave. In looking at it, some of the facts get mixed up. But keep in mind, this was an account that was written almost 90 years after the actual events happened. So, based on the actual data, we know that Sarah dies in 1799, 
And then in quick succession, her sisters Ruth, Andrus, and her brother James all die. So reading the actual facts, obviously, the story that Sidney Ryder recounts in 1888 differs somewhat from the facts. Now, is that just part of the distance of time? Is that because he's hearing a story from a friend of a friend? We don't really know. Likewise, some of that information, like where Sarah was originally buried, probably also got lost over time. This is one of the cases where you can really see why it's so difficult to use this history and to try to match it up with the written accounts. How much artistic license was taken by the author? How much was it informed by other things that they may have read? Because obviously there are subsequent accounts in different places between now and then. All of these things put forward a lot of questions, but without a doubt, this account establishes very early on not only what the strange experiment was, it appeared perhaps that Stephen Staples had requested in Rhode Island. Keep in mind, he was doing this just a couple years before. The idea that he was looking to exhume his daughter Abigail as an experiment to perhaps do something with her remains to try to stop her sister from dying of consumption. And it shows that this is a tradition that seems to be all around the region. If you look at Rhode Island, Cumberland is in the northwestern corner. Exeter is in the southwestern corner. Rhode Island's not big, but geographically they're about as far apart as they can. But it establishes that in this region, this is something that is a tradition that appears to be passing around, and that people seem to have the belief that consumption within families can be somehow controlled by exhuming the bodies. Now, before I discount it, I should say that there is a very interesting observation that was made to Michael Bell by a professor at Brown University upon hearing one of his talks about these vampire cases. This man, whose name is Robert Matheson, made the observation that in looking at the map that Bell had made of these cases, they all appeared to be clustered in areas of dissidence, at least in a religious sense. So the clusters in western Rhode Island, for the most part, along the border with Connecticut, some of them crossing over. Several other cases, for example, in Vermont, which I'm not really going to go into today, he notes that all of the areas where these things happen are areas where there is not a Puritan stronghold. All of those really tight, rigid Puritan traditions, all of their beliefs are not really accepted in this part of the world. And as a result, these folks are very spiritual and they are very superstitious, but they are not very religious. They are also really rough and tumble swamp Yankees who often will take medicine and other matters into their own hands. This is important to remember. These are places, I don't want to call them lawless, but places where the law is something that people tend to take into their own hands because they have to. They are small, subsistence farming towns where people don't have access to the same things that their brethren on the eastern side of the state may have. Now, switching over the border to Connecticut, there's really not a lot of cultural difference. And it's unsurprising that a lot of the same superstitions and a lot of these same traditions bleed over the border. 
The first of these two cases doesn't have a definitive date, but it happens circa the same time as both the Abigail Staples and Sarah Tillinghast cases, right on the edge of the 18th and 19th centuries. In 1990, two young boys were playing on the edge of a gravel pit, which frankly sounds like a terrible idea and a good way for a really bad accident to happen, but I'm not a parent, so I can't judge. When they were sliding along the edge of this gravel pit, they unearthed two skulls, which I'm sure resulted in quite a bit of screaming and scrambling to get up the hill away from these dead bodies. Quickly, they determined that these remains had been buried for a long time. They weren't murder victims. And so instead of the medical examiner, they called in Nick Bellantoni, who was the state archaeologist for Connecticut. In examining these remains, what he discovered was that this was a small, unidentified family cemetery that had belonged to the Walton family. Given that it was precariously edged, close to the edge of the gravel pit, the owner asked them to disinter the bodies and reinter them in a nearby historic cemetery. In the process of this, the archaeological team discovered a couple of things. First, that there were 27 burials there. They were quite old, 18th century most likely. But one of the burials was very peculiar, and this was burial number four. These remains, first of all, were not just interred inside a coffin, but were inside a crypt that covered it with slabs of stone on three sides. When these were removed, they could see that initials and a number had been placed in tacks on the cover of the coffin. The initials were JB, and the number was 55. Now, he most likely was related to the burials on either side of him, who had similar markings on their coffins, but did not have stone slabs. As part of the archaeological work that was done, obviously, they removed the remains and examined them. And imagine their surprise when they opened up this casket to find that inside, sometime after death, the remains had been disincorporated. This was not predation by animals. These remains were still within the coffin, but it appeared that this person had been dug up and then their head removed and their body parts rearranged in what was best described as sort of a Jolly Roger shape. Skull and crossbones. The question is, why would someone be dug up and their body parts rearranged? Knowing these vampire legends across the border in Rhode Island helped them to kind of piece this out. Because one of the other things that they discovered about JB is when they looked at him, they found scarring that was consistent with pulmonary tuberculosis. So, because this was an unmarked cemetery, because there were no tombstones and there was no research that they could do to accurately identify these individuals, they don't necessarily know what this ritual was. There has been no account that they have found of this. But this disincorporation of the corpse matches up with the disinterment that has been done in other parts of the region. So very likely this individual fits into that pattern and was some variation of the same exhumation process to try to stop the spread of tuberculosis because this individual very clearly had it. The great thing about this is, is that finally we have archaeological evidence, because unfortunately in many of these cases, including both Abigail Staples and Sarah Tillinghast, there were no actual located burials. There were family cemeteries where we believe the burials were, but unfortunately that was about where the story ended, and we had to deal only on the accounts in papers. So, 
Now, we have archaeological evidence of a burial being disturbed on an individual who had physical traces of having tuberculosis that was geographically connected to other cases in the region. The last question, though, that wasn't fulfilled because we didn't know anything about this individual's family was the idea that there were multiple individuals who had died around the same time in a family, where this superstition of one family member preying on the other. So we don't have evidence of that, at least not in this case. But there is a second case in Connecticut where, in his research, Nick Bellantoni had been able to trace this case. And so this is what he brings to Michael Bell. And so they start to investigate another example, geographically right there, where they had a similar case. And in this case, not only did they have the written evidence, but they also have a physical description in writing. This story was released in May of 1854 in the Norwich Weekly Courier under the title of Strange Superstition. Quote, A strange and almost incredible tale of superstition has been related to us of a scene recently enacted at Jewett City. It seems that about eight years ago, a citizen of Griswold named Horace Ray died of consumption. Since that time, two of his children, both of them sons, we believe, and grown to a man's estate, have sickened and died of the same disease, the last one dying some two years since. Not long ago, the same fatal disease seized upon another son, whereupon it was determined to exhume the bodies of the two brothers already dead and to burn them. And for what reason do our readers imagine? Because the dead were supposed to feed upon the living. And that so long as the dead body in the grave remained in a state of decomposition, either wholly or in part, the surviving members of the family must continue to furnish the sustenance upon which the dead body fed. Acting under the influence of this strange, and to us, hitherto unheard of superstition, the family and friends of the deceased, accompanied by various others, proceeded to the burial ground at Chewett City on the 8th, dug up the bodies of the deceased brothers, and burned them on the spot. The scene, as described to us, must have been revolting in the extreme, and the idea that it could have grown out of a belief, such as we have referred to, tasks human credulity. We seem to have been transported back to the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition, instead of living in the 19th century and in a state calling itself enlightened and Christian. Now, the interesting thing about this story is, as usual, the reporter got most of it wrong. The man's name was actually Henry B. Ray, not Horace. And the first member of the family to die was his second eldest son, whose name was Lemuel. He died in March of 1854 at the age of 24. His father would die four years later, not first. And then in 1851, several years later, Alicia, the 26-year-old son of the family, died. There were two remaining sons. And these sons, it's a little confusing because the first, James Leonard, lives until the 1890s. And then the other one, they don't actually know when he dies, but it's significantly afterwards. So it does not appear that either of them had consumption or if they did, they lived healthy, long lives because of it. Now, what makes it even more confusing is that the remains have also been moved since they were in the cemetery and they actually have newer headstones. This is perhaps one of the better examples where you have a written account of one thing happening. And I'm not saying that these things didn't happen. What I'm saying is that 
it's like playing a game of telephone in the classroom where the last person to hear the story isn't hearing anything like what the first person had whispered in their ear. And often people embellish and vital facts are lost along the way so that the end result is a story that you can't really separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of what's factual and what's not. Now, what I can say about these cases is that aside from the value archaeologically of JB's grave, they show a slightly different procedure, but the same thematic beliefs. Now, the interesting thing is, is that tracing back these ideas and trying to figure out where they are, there is a theory that there is actually written evidence that was followed. And this was a paper that was called The Surprising Account of Those Specters Called Vampires, Vampires with a Y, which was published in the Connecticut Current, January 21st, 1765. In this article, they talk about the idea of burning. So could this be the origin of the whole theory? Could it have first gone to Connecticut and then bled over into Rhode Island? Did it go from burning a whole body to just burning the heart? It's really hard to say. And this is where Michael Bell's theory comes in, because one of the theories he has is that you start to see all of these occurrences in the late 18th century. He theorizes that a lot of these small towns may have had volunteers who went off to serve in the militia during the American Revolution. At that point, you have a lot of people who come from different cultural backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different regions with different traditions and folk remedies. They are all fighting together in an army. They are probably encountering people who they would never have met otherwise, who are imparting their own superstitions and ideas. During the war, you also have a great deal of death, particularly due to disease. So do some of these superstitions carry over? He even suggests that perhaps some of the mercenaries, particularly Hessian mercenaries, who fought on the side of the British, may have encountered Americans who picked up their traditions and their stories. Boy, do we love to blame the Headless Horseman for just about anything. And while Bell has taken a certain amount of ribbing for this theory, I don't think that it's a bad one. In fact, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. Now, we're talking about a relatively small region, so maybe they didn't need to go off to war to pick up these facts. That's entirely possible, too. I think that the combination of more knowledge, people moving between spaces... You'll also see a lot of this come with traveling pastors and things like that with the Second Great Awakening. All of these things are happening roughly around the same time. So increased mobility, increased information, perhaps increased literacy. All of these could be factors in this. To say nothing of the geographic region and being able to read similar accounts that are published in places. In the case of the Rhode Island stories, you also have intermarriages between the relatively few major families that live in the western part of the state. So that with the Tillinghast case in 1799, and with Mercy Brown that we'll talk about in 1892, there are multiple marriages and intermarriages between distant cousins or relations, and that story could have just been passed down as oral history. There are a lot of interlocking theories that go along. And... I also tend to agree with the idea that these areas are areas that are not traditionally religious. So they don't necessarily look upon things as a wrath of God, but rather as having a slightly more logical, and I know that vampires don't seem like a logical idea, 
but a more locally focused idea versus God causes sickness or God punishes us with sickness. In this case, they're looking for a more tangible idea because if you have a tangible idea, even if it's something that's supernatural, it's something that can be dealt with. Now, I'm going to cover the last two cases. Mercy Brown, without a doubt, is the most famous. There have been lots of allegations that she may be the inspiration for Lucy Wisterna in Dracula, because Bram Stoker may have read an article about her exhumation. Longtime listeners of Lore may remember that Aaron Menke actually covered her as the first episode of his podcast. She's pretty well known in the metaverse of supernatural stories, so I don't need to go into too much detail. But... Her story is well covered in the papers, and she's the one that attracts the most attention. And actually, the story that I'm going to close with is basically a case of mistaken identity over Mercy Brown, which just goes to show how well her story has become known throughout the world. Sadly, it's also kind of a scathing indictment of this war between rural and developed parts of the country. So, for example, this statement in the Providence Journal, quote, the shocking case of exhumation in one of the border towns of this state last week is, after all, only a rather more than usually striking illustration of a truth which cannot be denied. That the amount of ignorance and superstition to be found in some corners of New England is more than surprising to one who comes into contact with it for the first time. There are considerable elements of the rural population in this part of the country upon which the forces of education and civilization have scarcely made any impression. Now, clearly this reporter didn't know that there was a rich history of these type of exhumations, and so in reading of the case of Mercy Brown, dismisses the thing wholesale as a bunch of superstitious nonsense from a bunch of backwoods yokels. It's a little bit more complicated than that, if the rest of this episode has shown anything. It's that they were dealing with things in a very different way. So, what happened to Mercy? Well, it's a familiar story at this point. What happens is, is that you have a family where first Mercy's mother dies, then her sister dies, then she dies, and the last child in her family is her brother, and he is very ill. He is sent away to one of these tuberculosis sanatoriums in Colorado and goes out there in a hope of taking a cure that will help improve his disease. Now, sadly, this does not happen. And this is where things really start to get interesting. So, quote, It seems that Dr. Metcalf attended a Mercy Lena Brown during her last illness, and that a short time prior to her death, he informed her father that further medical aid was useless, as the daughter, a girl of 18 or 19, was in the last stages of consumption. The doctor had heard nothing further from the family until about a year ago when a man called upon him to state that Edward A. Brown, a son, was dying from the same disease and that several friends and neighbors fully believed that the only way in which his life could be saved was to have the bodies of the mother and two daughters exhumed in order to ascertain if the heart in any of the bodies still contained blood. As these friends were fully convinced that if such were the case, the dead body was living on the living tissue and blood of Edwin. The doctor sent the young man back, telling him that the belief was absurd. Last Wednesday, the man returned and told the doctor that Mr. Brown, the father, though not believing in the superstition himself, desired him to come to satisfy the neighbors and make an autopsy of the body. And this is a very interesting case because we actually see a doctor being called into the mix. 
On that Wednesday morning, March 17th, the doctor went his desire to what is known as Shrub Hill Cemetery in Exeter. It's actually the Chestnut Hill Baptist Church Cemetery. And four men who had unearthed the remains of Mrs. Brown, who had been interred for several years, in this case, almost a decade, nine years she's been buried. They found that some muscles and flesh still existed in a mummified state, but there was no blood in the heart. The body of the first daughter, Mary Olive, was taken from the grave, but only a skeleton with a thick growth of hair remained. Finally, the body of Mercy Lena, the second daughter, was removed from the tomb. And in this case, they are referring to a receiving vault. She died in January, so her body had not been buried. They were waiting for the spring thaw. So she had been in the receiving vault about two months. The body was in a fairly well-preserved state. The heart and liver were removed, and in cutting them open, the heart was filled with clotted and decomposing blood, which was what might be expected, but beyond the stage of decomposition. The liver showed no blood though it was in a well-preserved state. These organs were removed, a fire being kindled in the cemetery, and they were reduced to ashes, where the attendants seemed satisfied. Now, I have heard tales that state that it is entirely possible that the ashes were mixed with water and fed to Enwin, which would probably be a pretty good reason for him to die, and that's exactly what happened. So he does die shortly after this. The ritual does not save him. Now, This case, if you have listened to this whole episode, should not be surprising. This is the culmination of a century worth of superstition, where variations of this have been carried out time and time again. And if you read Bell's book, and if you read other accounts, this was not something that was just happening here, it's happening in other areas, I just don't really have time to cover it today. But you can see that in this case, there is a manifestation, a hope that this force of nature, that this animistic vampire can be overcome, that if it is something supernatural that is affecting people and making them sick, then there also must be some sort of ritual to reverse it. Now, you can see that this worked with varying degrees of success. Did they believe that this was almost like an inoculation? that you were using a weakened form of the virus from the corpse to try to inoculate the living person. Perhaps. Perhaps it was a placebo effect. We don't necessarily have a clear answer one way or another. What I find very interesting as a cemetery person is the fact that all of these occur in cemeteries. They all play out in cemeteries. Which is interesting when we get to the last example. So, The last example is fascinating because Nellie Vaughn was not a vampire in any sense. Nellie Vaughn dies in 1889. She is originally buried on her family farm. Now, it's worth noting a couple of things. First of all, she lives in West Greenwich, just up the highway from Exeter. The second is she does not die of tuberculosis. She dies of pneumonia. Yes, another pulmonary disease, but very different. Third, she does not stay buried on her family's farm for long. About six months later, her mother requests to have her remains exhumed and moved to the Plain Baptist Church Cemetery in town, which is one of the major cemeteries in West Greenwich. There is no sign that there is any ritual, that anything is done, and none of her family members are sick. So there is nothing about her death that is unusual or ties into any of the practices that we've talked about today, with the exception of her being exhumed. What is unusual about her is two things. The first is her epitaph. 
The epitaph at the bottom of her headstone reads, I am waiting and watching for you. Now, if you've listened to my podcast or walked through a cemetery yourself, you know that the Victorians were very excited about overblown and very flowery epitaphs. They were not subtle by any means. The second thing that's interesting about this is that the headstone is not from the time of her death. Now, this is something that I was really impressed at when I was reading these accounts, because there are a lot of cemetery sleuths out there that have actually figured this out for themselves. It is a dark gray, polished granite stone with ivy along the top. Now, as somebody who has been to hundreds, if not thousands of cemeteries, I look at this headstone, and this headstone, I should say, is no longer there, because after several attempts at stealing it and breaking off pieces, the good townspeople of West Greenwich decided to put it in storage to keep it safe. This headstone clearly comes from the late 20s, early 30s. And I say this as somebody who has seen a lot. This is not a Victorian-era headstone. And my theory is I don't think Nellie Vaughn actually ever had an original headstone. Because if you look at the history, her mother, whose last name is Babcock, and her mother's second husband both die in 1926. And if you look at their headstones, which are still there, I looked at them on Find a Grave, compared to a picture, which I looked at a picture from before the headstone was removed for Nellie Vaughn, they are all the exact same style. Her mother's doesn't have the ivy on it, but they are very similar. And I can see a mother who, being advanced in age, knowing she was moving towards death, might have communicated to her husband, who died a few months after her, that she wanted to put a headstone, which perhaps she could not have afforded to do at the time, on the grave of her daughter who died very young of pneumonia. And I can also see somebody like that being very sentimental and the idea that her daughter, who predeceased her, was waiting for her in heaven, waiting and watching for her. And that she might have left provisions after she died that they purchased the said headstone. And guess what? All the headstones are the same design, so I think this is a pretty solid theory. But supposedly in the late 60s or early 70s, there was a teacher at Coventry High School, who has never been named or identified, who started to tell a story about a supposed vampire who was buried off Route 102, which coincidentally runs by both the Plain Meeting House Church and the Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, where Mercy Brown is buried. The theory is, is that a bunch of high school kids went looking for this vampire's grave, didn't go far enough, stopped at the first church they found, found this weird epitaph, and just started to call her a vampire. I think it's a pretty good theory. It's pretty solid that there's no other evidence beyond that. And my favorite is the fact that supposedly nothing grows on her grave. Well, if you have ever seen a cemetery that gets trampled, grass generally doesn't grow. Isn't that amazing? But what I think is most interesting is that these cemeteries are the background for this. They are the backdrop for all of this. What I also think is interesting, and one thing that was not really discussed in any of the literature, was the lack of institutional support for tuberculosis cases. So I started to do a little digging. Rhode Island did not have a sanitarium at the time of any of these cases. They come a little bit late to the game. In 1901, the state forms a committee to talk about the possibility of a tuberculosis, tuberculosis sanitarium because the almshouse in Cranston is overrun with cases of impoverished people who are in terrible health. 
1905, November, they opened the doors and will eventually become the sanitarium for the state. This is ironically in western Rhode Island, in the town of Barville on Wallam Lake, which also straddles the border between Connecticut and Rhode Island. Geographically, it's right next to where all of these tuberculosis vampire cases happen. It's kind of a wonderful irony that this open, rural, rustic environment is the perfect place for tuberculosis patients to convalesce. This hospital, which still exists, it is now the Zamborano unit of the Eleanor Slater Hospital, which is a hospital for long-term patients. It's still there, and it did serve, and it did help drastically reduce the number of tuberculosis deaths in Rhode Island during the years that it operated. To me, it's really sad that the institutions, that the infrastructure that was needed to combat tuberculosis just did not exist. And I have to wonder if this vampire panic, if these weird exhumations are the result of all of this folklore, the result of all of these ideas, or if they are also the result of the fact that this place just didn't have the infrastructure that it needed. It didn't have the ability to treat these people in the way that other areas did. Like with most things, it's probably a combination of all of them. I would ask, be mindful. I know that everybody loves a good spooky story. I know that everybody loves the intrigue. And these are fascinating tales, don't get me wrong. But be respectful. Unfortunately, the lore and the fascination surrounding these stories had led to a lot of physical destruction. And I know most of that is stupid high school kids. Believe me, I taught high school for many years. I know they can be idiots. But beyond that, just be respectful of it. And go viewing these places as an important part of history and these landscapes as part of the story. Because so much of this story has disappeared over time. And so the remnants of what's left, and Mercy Brown's headstone is still there, the cemetery where Abigail Staples is buried is still there. All of these places are still there. And they are still an important part of this story. Because unfortunately, as prevalent as tuberculosis was, it was so common that often it wasn't noted. And this terrible plague that wiped out so much of humanity often has few physical traces in the remnants of what's left behind. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please rate and review Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Helps make me easily discoverable by all those people looking for good cemetery content. Follow along on both Facebook and Instagram for lots of fun tidbits that go along with this. I did take some photos of the cemetery where Abigail Staples is supposedly buried. I'm going to be sharing those in the upcoming week after I release this. Lots of new stuff coming. The re-recording continues. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.